Well, this morning we continue our look at Revelation, and today we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 12. So let's go ahead, grab our Bibles, and make our way to Revelation chapter 12. All right, I want to set the tone for today's message, okay? I want to set the tone by this quote, should be on the screen behind me. The Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. I really want that to sink in. Because I think often as Christians here, especially in our nation, I think we forget that. Like it or not, we as Christians are at war. But it's not with who you may think we are at war with. We are at war with an enemy. Now here's point number two. We are at at war with an enemy, I'm going to say this, who hates you, who wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy you like he himself destroyed himself before God. Jesus talked about this enemy when he described him in John 10.10 and said, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Later on, Peter said in Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, he said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, your enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The title of my message this morning is Overcoming the Devil. We have a formidable adversary. We have an enemy that hates you and is seeking to destroy you. He's already destroying the world around us. Why? Because the Bible says that he is the ruler of this world. But 2,000 years ago, Christ pierced the darkness. And he said, enough is enough. And began the process of redemption. To bring us back to who God originally intended us to be. Chuck Swindoll wrote concerning this. He said, know this, Satan hates us. All who love and follow Christ and his teachings must never forget those three words. He wants nothing more than to sabotage our love for God and our love for others, to tempt us into a moral catastrophe, and or to see us choose a lifestyle of sin rather than a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we falter, he stands ready to accuse us before God. When we pass the test of temptation, he looks beyond that and is already strategizing his next attack. Satan hates us with a relentless passion and will never cease to destroy us. One wrote concerning this war, he said this, Even though we don't have a say about being in the battle, we do have a choice. We can win the battle or lose it. We can gain ground or lose ground. We can advance or retreat. That much at least is up to us. He has given us all the power and authority we need to take a stand against our adversary. We just have to make up our minds whether we will use it or not. And that is the question that I pose to you this morning. Will you take the opportunity to defeat the enemy that stands against us and all that God would have for us? I bring you to the book of Revelation chapter 12. As John now is given a panoramic look, as we see the incredible wave of persecution now uh, sweeping across the earth during the tribulation period, It appears that God now takes him back to the reason for it all. Why is this persecution occurring? 
Why do we find ourselves in this position? Why are these things happening? And so God takes John and begins to show him and bring him before a mural, if you will. Uh, Picture this standing there in Rome under the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and seeing that incredible artwork that has been displayed telling a story. So it is the same with the text that we are entering in this morning and we find ourselves introduced and given a great sign in heaven. Notice with me verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God (coughs) that they should feed her there 1,260 days. The sign that John saw was more than just an earthly event. Some have reduced it to simply a description of the star that heralded the announcement of Jesus into the world. Or even a comet that flew by when Caesar Nero became emperor. What John is seeing is God's explanation to him of why the world and God's people are going through this time of persecution. Why you and I, each and every day, find ourselves to be hated by the world in which we occupy. John is being told why this is all occurring. It didn't start with you. It started in a much larger scope. Before you ever existed. You entered into something the moment you entered into, a, as, uh, into the Christian faith. You entered a war that began long ago. So who is this woman that John speaks of in verse 1 of chapter 12? The woman mentioned here, let me tell you who she's not. Many of our Catholic friends want to believe that this is a description of Mary. Because the child born here is obviously referring none other than to Jesus Christ. But the description given here is not that of Mary, but of the nation of Israel itself. In fact, we first see this description of Israel back in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 10. Notice with me, as Moses writes, he says, Then he dreamed still another dream, this is speaking of Joseph, And told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. Of course, it's not very uh, popular with his brothers. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down uh, to the earth before you? Yep, that's exactly what's going to happen. This is speaking of the nation of Israel. The description that John is given and showed is the same description of the dream that Joseph had so many years earlier. Of course, the woman is the nation of Israel. The 12 stars belong to the 12 tribes. The sun and the moon refer to Jacob and Rachel. And for three and a half years, according to the Jewish calendar, 1260, the Jewish calendar is 360 days per year. For three and a half years, the nation of Israel will be thrown 
into a state of fleeing into the wilderness due to the persecution that is going to come by this one who is introduced to us as a fiery red dragon. Of course, I'm sure you're all familiar with the famous artwork from William Blake, the red dragon, in his depiction of Satan here at this point in time. Of course, what is happening here is that Satan is waiting for the birth of the Messiah to persecute him, to stop him from ruling and coming into power and redeeming the earth back to himself, through himself, for the glory of God. All of this is occurring, and John is now being made aware of this. And notice with me in verse 2, Then being with child, of course, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now, we're going to get into this more next time, but this is directly taken from the book of Daniel. Daniel introduced us to this imagery depicting the nations and the coalition of nations that would arise during this seven-year period of time. So let me cliff note it for you. During the seven-year tribulation period of time, the Bible says the world will be ruled by a coalition of ten nations that come together that originally were part of the old Roman Empire. And that is what we see here. And out of those ten nations, ten kings will arise. And out of those ten kings, there will be an eleventh, and the eleventh will be the Antichrist himself. So John is now giving us the details of who is inspiring all of this. It is the ruler of the world, Satan himself, bringing this together for the purpose of opposing God and all that he stands for, and all who follow him. As we look at that more next time, I would encourage you to go back and look at the book of Daniel for yourself. But let me give you a couple of samples for you this morning. Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Daniel writes, he says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And I can, as I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom the three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in, the, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that speaks pompous words. This is a description of the Antichrist. The term horn meant an individual of authority or one who carries authority, often referring to that of a king. When the Antichrist rises to power, three of the ten initial kings will be either killed or displaced, allowing for the rise of the Antichrist. Later on in Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, then the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another uh, shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. The Bible also tells us that Satan didn't fall himself. In Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, we have an account of that moment where Satan, because of pride, was raised up before God, desiring that all worship him as all had worshiped God. And at that moment, Satan fell, but he didn't fall alone. Notice with me in verse 4. And his tail drew a third of the stars, which is another term for angels, a third of the angels fell with him, 
and they threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. The individual here is undoubtedly Jesus himself. The description of him in verse 4 and in verse 5 is similar to that of the verses in Psalms and in the book of Isaiah. Notice with me in Psalm 2, 7 and 9, this one who rules with a rod of iron. David writes and he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, speaking of Jesus. Ask me and I will give you the nations of your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Meaning that he is going to come to judge and to hold the world accountable for all of the corruption that seems to have gone unchecked up until that point. But know this, that the reason Satan hates you today is because Satan hated Jesus from the very beginning. Why? Because from the very beginning, God made it known to Satan back in the garden in Genesis 3.15 that one would come and crush the head of Satan and bruise his heel. In Genesis 3.15, we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In John's Gospel, John 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus warned us. He said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And now we're seeing this. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Aren't you glad you came for an uplifting message this morning? But hey, we have a, we have a uh, mission here at Calvary. We don't want to just tell you what you want to hear. We want to tell you what you need to hear. And we need to be reminded of this. Because if you remember throughout the Bible, Satan continuously try to destroy the means by which Messiah would come. In Genesis chapter 6, these fallen angels came and intermingled with women. Nephilim were created. And shortly after that, God judged the entire world because they tried to pollute the bloodline in which Christ would come. Remember, when the children of Israel found themselves in Egypt... And a pharaoh came to power who no longer knew them and knew Moses. He began to kill each of the newborn male children who were afraid. Because he was afraid of who God would rise up, raise up to lead the people out. And of course we remember as we come to the Gospels when that star proclaimed that Messiah was about to arrive, that Herod went forth and killed all the male children. This was Satan trying to bring things to an end because he hates Jesus because everything that Jesus stands for reminds Satan that he's done. He's finished. He's doomed. Okay? It's over. The problem is, is that we are just going through battles until the moment that Jesus returns physically and ultimately once and for all. Notice with me as we continue on here in chapter 12 that a war breaks out in heaven. Notice with me in verse 7. And a war broke out in heaven and Michael, one of the named angels of the Bible, and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. 
So if we had any doubt of who this great dragon is, John tells us clearly. Verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In the grammar in verse 7, it's interestingly constructed in the Greek. Satan in heaven started this war. He started this battle because he knew he was defeated. He tried to make one last furious attempt to overthrow heaven. And notice with me those beautiful words. He did not prevail. Michael took him out. Cast him down once and for all. Booted him out of heaven. Now that might surprise you that Satan is in heaven. We were just talking the other day and someone asked me, where do you think Satan is? And I said, in heaven. And what? Really? Heaven? Yeah. In the book of Job, we find that Satan is there accusing Job before God. Satan in heaven is now permanently cast out to heaven, out of heaven onto the earth. And all hell breaks loose as a result. But please notice that we are fighting against a foe who has already been defeated. He was defeated at the cross, and here Michael kicks him out of heaven once and for all. But this isn't the first time that the veil to the unseen realm has been drawn back for us in Scripture. Many ask the question, what is the true definition of reality? Reality in a modern era was always defined by the senses of the individual. What I could see, what I could hear, what I could smell, what I could touch, what I could taste. This constituted reality. There was nothing beyond my five senses. And in the past now, I've made the argument that there's a sixth sense. And no, we're not talking about a bad movie with uh, Bruce Willis. I'm talking about the sense of feeling. Feelings today have become the arbitrator, the determinator of truth. And feelings can be extremely misleading. Please know that already we have been introduced to a tactic that Satan brings about, and that is to deceive the whole world that is under him. How do I define deception? Allowing one to believe that they're doing everything right, but in the end comes destruction. That is what Jesus defined it as. I think I'm doing everything right, and yet, lo and behold, at the end of all, we find that it has led to utter destruction rather than to the happiness or the life in which we were looking for, the satisfaction that we were longing for. Satan has come to deceive, and he is destroying people's lives left and right. The more and more I see our nation move away from our Judeo-Christian values, move away from God, move away from his word, Satan's playground opens and enlarges, and more and more people are now showing and demonstrating the destructive act of Satan in their life. These people aren't happy. They're not finding what they're looking for. They're lost. They're in darkness. The ruler of this world has blinded their eyes. Reality isn't simply defined by our senses. There's a reality outside of our reality that is just as much part of our reality as everything within our reality. Say that ten times fast. There's a world, a spiritual world. It's interesting to me that polls are now showing that more and more people are now identifying themselves as quote-unquote spiritual. Now, that's a very generic term, and it can mean many, many different things to many, many different people. And part of our jobs as Christians is to help 
those individuals who see themselves as spiritual to define those terms. To show them, yes, there is a spiritual world. And in that spiritual world, there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death and destruction. And then there's the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God that is rising each and every day. Regardless of what Satan throws at it, God continues to work like only God can do in this world. And in the end, we win. We win. But back in the book of Daniel, and in Job, and in Zechariah, this veil has been pulled back to allow us a glimpse into this unseen realm. In Daniel Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, talking about an angel, 21 days. And behold, Michael, who always seems to watch over the people of Israel and God's people, one of the chief princes came to my help. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. The angel was on his way in answering Daniel's prayer and was held up by a demonic force, a fallen angel that is classified here as one of the kings of Persia. And it was Michael, one of the chief uh, princes, who came, an archangel came, to allow the message to arrive to Daniel. You know, when we pray, we often get discouraged because it seems as if the answer isn't coming. It seems as if God isn't interested in answering us, but we find in the book of Daniel that the moment Daniel started praying, God had already sent the answer to him. But the answer was held up due to the spiritual war that is taking place behind this veil that we are getting a look through this morning. So I say to you this morning, if an answer to prayer hasn't come, keep praying. The answer's on its way. And if Satan is that willing to resist it for that long, the answer must be pretty good. And God's going to do something great. So don't give up. In Daniel chapter 10, just a few verses later, in Daniel 10 verses 20 through 21, then he said, do you not know why I have come to you? I now must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these things except Michael, your prince. Meaning, that no matter what, ob- uh, what hinders or what would look to hinder, what obstacle I need to overcome, Michael will be there to see it through. He will make sure that I get back to where I need to be. I want to make you aware of this. Because as I said at the beginning, the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And we are in a war, each and every one of us. And I am not in this war to lose, are you? And one of the greatest ways that we can take it to him is through prayer. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, at the very end, Daniel writes, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as, never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, and that time your people shall be delivered, and everyone who is found written in the book. Earlier on, Michael had an exchange with Lucifer over the body of Moses. Jude 9 tells us, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring uh, against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. It wasn't time yet. But now in Revelation chapter 12, that time has come, and Michael has thrown his can out of heaven. Okay? 
I get pumped up about this stuff, don't you? I mean, this just encourages me to no end. But notice with me in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvations and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb, number one, and by the word of their testimony, number two. And they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and to you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that his time has a short time. It's almost over. And Satan's going to try to destroy each and every person that he can in the midst of that time. It is interesting to me that as we watch this unfold before us, in verse 11 we are told that those on the earth at that time who follow God were capable of overcoming, overcoming the devil. And I'll show you in a moment four things that Satan does not want you to know about him. And then we're going to look at three Manners in which these individuals overcame Satan. But I want to read these words from Paul the Apostle out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. He says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. There we find our enemies listed for us. The individuals that we see here helplessly doing the bidding of these individuals listed here in in this text are mere pawns in the great war that is taking place before us. And we need to have compassion upon them because the only difference between them and us is the fact that Jesus Christ, by His grace, has opened our eyes to the truth, has removed the blinders that Satan has kept upon us. And if He wouldn't have done that, we would be groping around in the darkness just as they are today. That's why Jesus says, have compassion, love them. Show them that you are the light of the world because I am the light that came into the world. You and I now are on a recon mission. Right now we are looking as Jesus did to seek and to save those who are lost. So how do you do that? Well, take this approach. Start with your friends and family. Those who are closest to you. Take a look around and see, are there any of my family members or friends who don't know the Lord? And then begin to pray for them. Asking that God would intercede. Prayer is the greatest weapon we have in our evangelistic efforts. Accompanied with the Word of God, it is indefensible. Meaning, they can't come back with anything that's going to prevail against it. Except their free will. And then after you, see the, after you make that list, then go to the next ring of your people, your friends, your co-workers, those you have an acquaintance with, and look around and see who doesn't know the Lord and begin to pray for them. And then look for those opportunities when you're out and amongst strangers to see who God might bring about in throughout the course of your day and be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you for anyone who shall ask. In verse 13, we come now that Satan, after being thrown out of heaven, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that is the nation of Israel, who gave birth to the male child. John now is telling his people, 
the Jewish people why they are going through such persecution during the tribulation, it's because it started with Jesus. Why do we go through persecution? Because it started with Jesus. Why do they hate us? Because we love him. But the woman, notice this, was given wings of a great eagle. Again, language found in in the Old Testament, Isaiah specifically. That she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a times. In the Greek language, this is speaking of periods of time, and one single time is a year, times is two years, and a half a time is a half a year. Three and a half years again mentioned for us. From the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, meaning an all-out assault against her that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ." As God saved His people. As we read in Exodus 19.4, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says to His people. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. In Isaiah, we read in Isaiah 40.30-31, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like an eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And Isaiah 59, 19. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west. And His glory from the rising of the sun. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up and stand against him. God will preserve His people, defend His people. As the Word tells us, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. We do have a formidable enemy, and he's raging against us and all that God would have for us. But we can overcome the devil. Overcoming the devil begins by understanding four truths that the Bible tells us about the devil that he does not want you to know. The first is is that Satan is nowhere near in being equal to God, number one. Satan is not just simply the opposite and equal to God. As one wrote, he says, Satan is mighty, but God is the Almighty. Satan is a destroyer, but God is ultimately will destroy the destroyer. Here is what we know about God. He is omnipotent, meaning he has unlimited power. He is omniscient, meaning that he is, has unlimited knowledge. He is omnipresent, meaning that he is present everywhere. This does not describe Satan at all. Number two, the devil can do nothing to the life of the Christian without God's permission. Know that. Know that Satan cannot do anything to you that God does not allow. And if God allows it, there are two things that you need to know. If God allows something to occur at the hand of Satan in your life, there are two things you need to know that's very important. Number one, that whatever happens is going to work out for your good. Because all things work to the glory, uh, to good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. But number two, and this is so important, God knows how it's going to turn out. And you won't be destroyed by it. You will be better for it. Because God has you in His hands. And no, whatever, no matter what the enemy throws at you, remember, the enemy came at Job And God said, look, you think about my servant Job. And Satan said, look, I I think Job would fall just like everyone else if you allowed it. But you have a hedge of protection around him. And God says, okay, 
Is that what you think? Took the hedge of protection, allowed Satan to go at Job without taking his life. And Job went through a period of time like no other human being on this earth. And yet, when it was all said and done, in the end, Job stood strong. The Christian life will be very difficult for those of us who have a temporal mindset. If we're only looking for our best life now, we are going to be gravely disappointed. But if we understand that everything that happens in this life now will reverberate throughout heaven and eternity, then we're going to look at this world much differently, just as Jesus did. You know, everything that we see from our perspective would have concluded that Jesus was a complete failure. He was rejected. He was tortured. He was crucified. He was done away with. And yet in it all, Everything went exactly according to plan, and in the end, Jesus rose on the third day, demonstrating exactly who he was, and Satan realized that the nail to his coffin had finally been struck. If Jesus had a temporal mindset, the night he cried out saying, Lord, if there be any way that this cup can pass from my hand, so be it. But then Jesus said this, not my will, but your will be done. If we have a temporal mindset, we will grow incredibly discouraged. If we have an eternal mindset, we will see that everything happening here has purpose and reason. Though I may not understand it fully this side of heaven, once I cross that divide, I will understand everything perfectly. Number three, the devil doesn't want you to know that he is doomed. Isaiah says that in the end, when we walk past Satan, we will look at him. And if I may paraphrase in the Eric Standard version of the Bible, we're going to look at him and say, that's the guy that caused us all the difficulty? Him? Really? If I went to high school with him, he'd still be locked in his locker. That's the guy? He's doomed. And yet... Because he is doomed, he rages and looks to destroy as many in the wake of his lasting existence as, as possible. The great commentator John Phillips wrote in his, he said, Satan is now like a caged lion, enraged beyond words by the limitations now placed on upon his freedom. He picks himself up from the dust of the earth, shakes his fist at the sky, and glares around, choking with fury for ways to vent his hatred and spite upon mankind. Number four, the devil doesn't want you to know that he attacks through accusations. Satan truly only has one weapon in his arsenal. I know that because in the two most crucial, crucial moments in time, Adam and Eve, and at Jesus Christ, he used the same weapon twice. That weapon was meant to set the platform for accusation. The weapon that I speak of is temptation. He tempted Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fell into that temptation, and they were rightfully accused for what they had done and suffered the consequence thereof. But then, thousands some years later, another came, born in a manger in Bethlehem. Walked throughout this earth. Angels proclaimed his arrival. At his baptism, God the Father announced that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And before beginning any of his earthly ministry, the very first thing that he had to encounter was a one-on-one -on -one conflict with Satan in the wilderness. And in that conflict, where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded. And therefore was then able to set himself as a sacrifice for the whole world. That each and every one of us who would come to him would find saving faith and eternal life. Where Adam and Eve failed, Satan, I'm sorry, Jesus succeeded. But it was temptation that came at them both. Luring you away from what God has for you. Let me say this. God knows best. There is nothing in this world that I would trade for my relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing. 
It didn't matter what was offered to me. Nothing is worth what my relationship with Christ is worth for me. This accusation is the method in which Satan uses to eliminate your access to God. It was the great Victor Hugo, the author of La Miserelle, who wrote, a good general must penetrate the brain of his enemy. We need to understand, as one wrote, he says, how does the devil attack us? It is often through accusation. We read here in the words of Revelation 12.10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. Satan is truly the accuser of the brethren. He stands before God and says, Eric has no right to be in your presence. Here is all of the sin that Eric has ever committed. You cast me out for pride, he says. But look at what he has done. Look at each and everything, God. He has no right to be in your presence. He too should be cast out. And you know what? He's right. And if I stood there alone at that moment, I would be as guilty as he says he is. Because I am as guilty as he says I am. But I don't stand there alone. At that moment of accusation, one touches my shoulder. He pulls me to the side and stands before me. And looks to the Father and says, He is one of mine. And the Father hammers the gavel and says, case dismissed. That one is none other than Jesus Christ, my great advocate, that allows me to stand before God the Father, forgiven through Him. Though my sins were as scarlet, now they are as white as, I'm as white as snow, the Bible says. That's what Jesus has done for us, and that's why Satan hates Him. In Revelation 12, 11, in closing, let me give you three things that John tells us we can use to overcome the devil. Number one, notice with me, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. So the next time the enemy comes to you and says, you aren't worthy to approach God, you don't know uh, what to advise, meaning you don't have any clue at what to do next, agree with him. Say, yes, I have no right to be here. Say to the enemy, you are right. I am not worthy to approach God. I have never been worthy to approach God. Once more, what's more, I never will be worthy to approach God. My access to God's presence isn't based on my worthiness. It is based on what Christ did for me on the cross. Number one, you have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Number two, notice with me, you have overcome by the word of your testimony. Now, what does that mean exactly, the word of your testimony? It means this. It means not only do we overcome Satan personally, knowing that we are saved and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. But each and every time we take a step into this world and proclaim the testimony of Jesus Christ, and that testimony impacts another person, and that person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? We're overcoming the devil. Because nothing's going to hinder that appointment that that individual has with God. Nothing at all is going to hinder that. And if that individual is scheduled for a relationship with God the Father, nothing's going to stop. Satan can't get in the way of that. The Spirit of God is working and Satan just has to take a back seat by the word of their testimony. And number three, notice I should say before I move on to number three what Paul said. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, he said, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, that's another term for Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. 
If Satan has hold of one of your loved ones and has veiled their eyes, may I say, take it personally and respond the only way you can by getting on your knees and asking God the Father to open their eyes. And know this, that God the Father desires that none perish, but all come to saving faith. God is on your side. The Spirit of God is working in this world, convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You are not alone in this endeavor. But number three is also important. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And number three, and did not love their lives to death. You overcome Satan by not loving your life so much as to shrink from death. Meaning this, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake shall save it, the Bible says. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, three things are required. To deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. The word witness is one who proclaims a testimony to his own harm, meaning to death if necessary, because we know that what we're saying is true. If we look to live for ourselves within the Christian life, we will never overcome the devil. But if we look to live for Jesus Christ, then we will overcome him and walk in the victory that Christ has prescribed for you. There's this famous story, and I'd like to read it to you, of a believer who was brought before one of the Roman emperors. And the Roman emperor told him to renounce his faith, giving glory to Caesar, but he wouldn't do it. The emperor said, give up Christ or I will banish you. But the individual responded, the believer said, but you can't banish me from Christ, the believer replied. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The emperor said, I will confiscate your property. The Christian said, my treasures are laid up in heaven and you cannot touch them. The emperor said, I will kill you. And the Christian replied, I have been dead to this world in Christ for 40 years. My life is hidden with Christ in God. You can't touch it. The emperor turned to someone, some of the members of his court, and said in complete disgust, what, you can do with such a, what can you do with such a fanatic? This was a man who did not love his life so much to shrink from death, and he overcame Caesar and Satan. May God give us more people like this. We are in a war, and a war has already been won, but the battles rage on as we, the enemy goes down in flames. Three things. We must be aware of this, we must be prepared for this, and we must be in prayer for this. Remember the dragon in Revelation 12. He wanted to devour the son being born 2,000 years ago. And to this day, he wants to devour all who belong to him. It's a conflict between God's seed and Satan's seed that will rage until the very end. And in the end, those who belong to Jesus Christ will overcome. I leave you with this, the words of James. In James 4, 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you.